Welcome to the Red Door Church Sermon Podcast. Red Door Church is a church seeking to transform the city of Pretoria by the power of the gospel. We are distinctly mission-minded, community-cultivating, and city-loving. Please enjoy this week's sermon, and don't forget to follow and continue the conversation by sharing with those around you. Uh, thanks, Helen. Got to catch my breath. I was down there with the kids singing and dancing, and it's... That's hard work. Um, family, welcome once again. Maybe uh, well done for Jabalili and a debut in the band. It was good. And then, Abby, is it your birthday today? Yes. Happy birthday. Yeah. We're bad for introverts. <laughs> We're not going to let you go quietly. Um, Family, it's good and it's an exciting morning. If you're joining us for the first time, we're in a series that we've called Worthy, and it's as we journey through the book of Philippians. It's Paul the Apostle that wrote to the church in Philippi. It's an amazing letter, and this morning is probably the central point of the book around which the whole book pivots and so it's, it's, it's a remarkable passage, and so just for our hearts, and, and not that it matters, but the new venue has aircon, not that it matters. <laughs> just putting it out there. Maybe it's just because I was dancing with the kids. Doesn't matter, but just a side note. Let me pray for our hearts. Father God, um, in all the excitement, we want to quiet our hearts, and we want to recognize that we need changing every day, Um, that in our hearts and left to our natural devices, we drift away from you. And so what we need is to hear your word, and to hear your word, we need your spirit to give us ears that hear and eyes that see. And so we pray that you would do that now as we behold your gospel, that we would become the image of Jesus. We pray this in your name, amen. I was recently on a human resources website giving advice to people how to do well in their life and in their jobs, and uh, there, was a motor, there was an article that talks about motivation, and it says, what drives us to do the things we do? What is it that pushes us to accomplish things? And a simple answer would be personal gain. But the question is much more complex than that. There are many ways that the to look at the concept of motivation, one of which is to examine motivation examples. A key ability of successful people is that they know how to motivate themselves effectively. The skill of being able to start and finish tasks rigorously is what solidifies their chances at being successful overall. But what kind of motivation is most important? Is it motivation that arises from outside the individual, which they call extrinsic motivation, or is it motivation that arises from inside the individual, which is called intrinsic motivation? Then they give examples of extrinsic motivations arising from external circumstances. It says we are sometimes motivated to go to work to earn money. That's a motivation. You need to earn money. We study to get good grades to be able to get a good job. We volunteer sometimes to get recognition. I pay taxes so I don't have to pay 
a fine. Those are external motivations for me to do some things. And then you get internal or intrinsic motivations. It says that we play sports because you enjoy how it makes you feel. Or you stay longer at work because you believe in the work that you do. Or you invest your money because you want to become financially independent. You travel because you want to explore different cultures. The article then goes on to debate, well, which is best? Which is the best type of motivation to use for yourself? Should it be extrinsic or should it be intrinsic? And was, as with most of these articles, the bottom line is, well, it depends on what type of person you are. <laughs> they never give an answer. What type of motivation is the best? Well, it got me thinking, what type of motivation then do we need as Christians to live the Christian life well? Should we look to external circumstances or is there something internal that we should turn to to be able to live effectively as the people of God? Well, this is exactly what Paul is speaking about today and this is what a lot of the letter to the Philippians is about. The church in Philippi is this church that Paul planted and they've been doing well. They know and understand the gospel and now he's writing to them to kick on, to live lives worthy of the gospel. That's kind of the theme verse of the letter. It says in Philippians 1 verse 27, Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the gospel. And so basically what Paul is telling these guys as he wrote to them Maybe a little bit of context if you're joining us here for the first time. He started and is affirming this church and encouraging this church and saying, you guys are doing well, hold on to the gospel. He then shares his own circumstances. Paul is writing this letter from prison. And he's saying, but in spite of the fact that I'm in prison, God is still using this for his glory. He is still advancing the gospel. And then at the end of chapter one, he says this verse and he turns the focus to the Philippian church. And he says, only let your manner of life, be worthy of the gospel. You, the Philippian church, you, Christian at Red Door Pretoria, make sure that your life is worthy of the gospel. Ensure that the pattern of your life is dictated by this glorious news of the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that's what we're wondering about this morning. Well, how do we do this? How do I accomplish this? How do I make sure that day in, day out, week in, week out, I live a life that is actually worthy of this gospel, worthy of the calling that God has called me to? Lives that correspond to this newfound identity in Jesus Christ. What should we do? Is it an intrinsic or an extrinsic motivation that we should turn to? And so we pick it up in this letter that this was something that the Philippian church definitely needed to hear. Although they were firm believers of the gospel, although they happily accepted the good news of Jesus Christ, we see later on the letter that they were supporters of Paul, unashamed, but issues started to arise within the church. There were some disagreements. There was some conflict between the church members. And so Paul addresses these issues later in the letter, but what we see this morning is that the Philippian church needed to hear how the truth of the gospel, almost that cognitive intellectual truth of the gospel, spoke into their current circumstances. Because a lot of the times, if we're honest with one another, there's a bit of a disconnect. What I believe and how that impacts 
how I live. And this is sometimes difficult to do, especially in the heat of the moment or the heat of an argument. I was speaking to a friend this week and we're just speaking about marital relationships. How a lot of the times in marriages, it's not that we don't know what we should do or that we don't know what we should say, but in the heat of an argument, all of that goes out the window. And you just lose all your communication skills and you say everything that you're not supposed to be saying in that moment. And that's the same with any other relationship. And so the fact that we want to know is how can we allow the things that we know impact the way that we live in the heat of everyday life as we encounter different problems and different obstacles. Well, if you have your Bible with me, please unlock it. We're going to be in that passage. Not a lot is going to be on the screen this morning, so I want you guys to follow with me. We're in Philippians chapter 2, and I'm going to start with verses 1, 2 and a half. Paul starts at the back end of encouraging them to live lives worthy of the gospel. And he says, So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy. If there is. And so Paul starts with something called a subjunctive clause. For all my economic friends out there, there's a couple I met you this morning. It's the if statement in your Excel worksheet. If this is true, then this will happen. And so what Paul is saying, if the following is true, then you would do X, Y, and Z. Specifically, you would do, or specifically, he said, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is comfort from love, if there's participation in the Spirit, and if there's affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by doing the following. In other words, if the gospel indeed does these things, it should have an effect on the way that we live. And so Paul is, Paul is busy with an explanation here, so he doesn't give us the answer to the if statement yet. He just kind of lets us simmer on that point right now. He's just pondering. He's saying, okay, if this is true, but let's go on with the assumption that it is true. We'll get back to it in a moment. But he says, if this is true, then we, the church, should do the following from verses two to four. Read with me. He says, okay, if that's true, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. This is how the Christian family should relate to one another. This is how the Christians should relate to the rest of society. And I'm sure there's nothing new or weird about this list. If you've been in the Christian circles for a while, you've probably heard this. This is not groundbreaking new news that you should be humble, that you should treat others the way that you should be treated, that you should look to the interests of others, that we should be single-minded as a church. I'm even sure that even if you don't call yourself a Christian, you would know that this is the expectation of the Christian life. You probably in a movie or somewhere is like, well, aren't Christians supposed to do these things? So the knowledge of this isn't actually groundbreaking. However, 
There's something that few people seem to ever talk about when we go through this list. It is how incredibly difficult this is. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but count others more significant than yourself? That's the only reason why we do things. Every intrinsic and extrinsic example, even in the beginning of the sermon that we gave, although not bad, everything serves to only serve myself. Our basic motivation to do or not to do anything is the way that it would serve me, how it would make me feel. How this will help me, will this make me happy? And now Paul comes and says it should be the exact opposite. Yeah. This is definitely counterintuitive. And we kind of see it play out in everyday relationships. Maybe going back to a marriage relationship. Couples marry or they marry one another often, I've heard, because they're in love. And there's specific reasons why they want to get married. Well, there's... This is how this person is. This is how they make me feel. This is why I like them. This is where, why I love them. And the problem with people is people change. And so in 10 years, the person that you married for a specific set of reasons are now different. And so what we see often in society that our motivations then change. The, if it's only about my interest and what this person can give me, those things change, and so my motivation to stay with this person is gone. And so I'm actually, and this is maybe controversial, but I'm not surprised the divorce rate is that high. If marriage is simply around love and how you make me feel, and when I get out of the goal or out of this marriage, it simply won't last. We struggle to love one another in humility. We struggle to look at their needs than just the needs of ourselves. At least couples have the benefit of starting off being in love. Now Paul says, you guys that aren't in love with one another, do that. Be that kind of community. Live in that closeness with one another. Serve one another in this way. It's intense. Don't get me wrong, I can see the benefit if we were to be able to do this. I can see the benefit of being a community that functions in this way, and it must be an incredible place to be a part of. To have that level and acceptance and support from the people around you, that they accept you and love you for who you are and not what you can give, not what you do or didn't do. Everything else is kind of performance-based. So to have that community, man, that's a safe space. It's definitely a place that I want to be a part of where people constantly is looking out for me, wondering if I'm loving the Lord more, if I'm okay. The question is not if we want this, but how do we attain this? How do we get to be such a people, such a community? Well, Paul then goes and he gives us the tools for this. In verse five, he says, have this mind amongst yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. And then he launches in a spectacular poem, which I'll get into in a moment. But basically, Paul is setting up this argument and he's saying, you need a motivation. There's that if statement in the beginning, if this is true. And then you also need a model. And both of those, the model and motivation to live lives that correspond in this manner is caught up in this next poem that Paul gives about the life 
death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You can't really see it in the English, but in Greek, this is just such a beautiful poem that Paul structured to reveal emphasis about his message. It's called a chiastic structure. I know, I'm just dropping some academic (laughs) words right now. But basically what it means is the poem is structured in such a way so that the center part of the poem reveals the emphasis of what all this is about. Paul is actually a poet. And so read with me from verses 6 to 11. That's the poem. Paul says, Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. So I want you to notice now, we're going to do steps. We're going to go down in the structure. Jesus is now at the top. He's with God. Follow me the steps that he takes down in obeying God and humbling himself. So he was with God. He was God himself. And then he took on the form of a servant by taking on flesh. Next, Being found in human form, he humbled himself further by becoming obedient, even to the point of death. Yes, let's go one step lower, even death on a cross. And now we see the change in the poem. Therefore, God exalted him. God gave him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every tongue should confess and every knee should bow and acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Is there any encouragement? Yes. Why? Because of this sacrifice, this love that God and Jesus has showed us, because of the reward of Christ. It says that Jesus did not hold on to the equality with God, meaning that Jesus was there, he was enthroned with God with all glory, and nothing forced Jesus to be incarnated. Nothing forced Jesus to come on the rescue mission. He willingly distanced himself from his privileged. He willingly humbled himself and took on the form of a servant. Even though he was still God in human form, he decided not to access his deity, but fully experienced what it meant to be human. All the troubles that got along with it. We cannot fathom the jump that it took from being eternal God, majesty, to taking on finite flesh, human form. The jump that Jesus took from there. But it didn't stop there. Not only did he become human, but he humbled himself by becoming a servant. The God of the universe now incarnate serving other fleshly beings. And then submitting, even becoming, humbling himself even more, submitting to the will of the Father by becoming obedient to the point of death. Yes, death on a cross. That execution which was reserved for the most vilest of criminals, for the scum of the earth, the one of the most excruciating ways to die, the holy Lord hang or hung on a tree. Our motivation is to see the unfathomable love that Jesus must have had for us, the incalculable sacrifice that he made, that though 
that through that we can have redemption, salvation of our souls, restoration for our wandering and broken hearts. What is the answer to the if statement? This is our motivation to live lives worthy of the gospel in comparison to what Jesus did. What he's asking from us is nothing. That is the fuel that actually motivates us every day to live lives different, to live lives worthy of the gospel as we take into account the majesty and the sacrifice that he made. It's not just the motivation. This is also the model that we should follow as Christians. How are we to live these lives? Have this mind amongst yourselves which is in Christ Jesus, meaning that this is also the pattern of our lives, driven by a desire to obey the Father the same way that Jesus submitted to the the will of the Father, we also forego our privilege. We should offer up ourselves as servants of Christ and of people. And symbolically, we should also then die to our soul, to ourselves, our own desires and our own will. It's a painful death because I want to look out for myself. I desperately want to make sure that I'm cared for. I desperately want to make sure that I'm number one in my own life. I want to be concerned only with my comfort and my interests. But family, see the reward. Because of the sacrifice and of the obedience of Jesus Christ, the first reward is it led to the redemption and salvation of the whole world. And not only that, because of this, God exalted him. Jesus did not need to have to exalt himself. He did not have to look out for his own interest, but because of his obedience, God exalted him, and God has given him the name that is above every name. All of this happened to the glory of God the Father. And so this morning, when we talk about motivation and how we can live different lives, we need to recognize the fundamental difference between gospel motivation and motivation that arises from the world, or the the way that the world motivates itself. There is a model and motivation that we need as Christians, but it's not extrinsic, and it's not even intrinsic. It's existential from us. It's this transformative motivation that we need. What we need is Christ to come in and change our hearts. There's no other motivation that will be able to sustain us and keep us going, running this race and fighting this fight. Nothing changes our hearts the way that the gospel does. What we need is kingdom long-term vision. Because we know this, but often our hearts don't believe this. We know that there is good in following Christ. We know there's good in dying to ourselves. But the immediate payoff of living for myself is just so enticing. I don't know about you guys, but that's basically diets. (laughs) We know where we want to get to, but McDonald's looks so good right now. (laughs) So what our hearts need to see is the long-term payout versus the immediate gratification of living for myself. And here it is. Kingdom-minded long-term vision. Recognizing things for what they were. The first is we need to recognize that the things that we want to live for now that we think will give us pleasure, that we think will give us fulfillment, how quickly that can be taken away. 
and how discontent we'll actually be in trying to live for ourselves. How living for yourself is actually the poison suffocating all your other relationships. The reason why we have conflict, why we don't have fulfillment in our relationships is actually because we think we need to live for ourselves, but it's the poison. It's the poison in our midst. So that's the one thing we need to see. And then secondly, what we need to see is how trustworthy Jesus is with his promises. How do we know we can trust him? Well, he didn't just talk the talk. He literally walked the walk. We know we can trust him in what he says because he gave himself for us. So family, as we obey God, we see that there's just a greater payout than living for ourselves. Firstly, we see in the same way that God uses and used Jesus to give redemption to the world, we see that God uses us as well. He uses our obedience to glorify him. We will share in this glory. It is definitely working out for our salvation, but as we obey him, God uses it to save other people as well. Isn't it amazing that we can be a part of that? We can be a part of this redemption story, being vehicles and tools in the creator's hands that he's using to reconcile the world to himself. But also, it's not just beneficial for this world and what we do, but it's also for the one to come. So again, counterintuitively, this is, Paul loves the counterintuitive stuff. The best thing that, you can, that we can do for ourselves is by not thinking of ourselves. Let, let me say this again. The ultimate investment would actually be not to live for yourself and your own interests, but giving that up and living for other people's interests. That's in your best interest. We do this because not only do we know and believe the gospel, but we want to see it manifest in our lives, spurred on by the life and love of Jesus. We become obedient to God and we see how God starts to use this obedience to draw people closer to him. But even more than that, we see that one day as we are obedient servants, God will use this to exalt us so that one day in the throne room of God, as we were faithful servants of the king, Jesus will get up and say, I know that guy. <laughs> Come up here. Come sit at the top of the table, the seat of honor, in front of everyone, exalting those who gave up everything now. So maybe you're visiting, visiting us here today and some people have been nice to you. They, they're asking how you're doing, asking about you, constantly just interested in you. And you might be thinking to you, man, these people are nice, but what, I wonder what's their game? <laughs> what's their angle? There's always an angle if people are this nice to me. Oh, friends, we have no angle. We simply have a great God that we love and that we want to transform us as well. And so what you need to recognize this morning is actually broken people simply trying to point one another to a glorious God. We don't have nice Christians. We have Christians that are dependent on the love and grace of the Father. So family, practically, we're almost there, practically what this means for us today we need to constantly remind one another, one another and push one another, not just to the good news of the gospel, but also to the model and motivation that Jesus gives us to live these lives worthy of the gospel. 
being humble, single-minded as a church, going in the same direction, counting others more than yourself, means practically in our relationships we need to give one another the benefit of the doubt. What I mean is this. We've already seen that relationships are messy. The glue that keeps this together is not how nice we can be with one another, but actually how much grace we can give to one another. How quickly we can forgive. We're quickly offended, but just as quickly we want to give grace. And we want to say, well, maybe that person didn't mean in that light. What this doesn't mean, family, is avoiding conflict. All the conflict avoiders are out there. <laughs> Loving one another doesn't mean avoiding conflict. Quite the contrary. It means causing some conflict. Sounds weird, right? When you, care, when you don't care about someone and they offend you, it's easy to write that person off. I'm just not going to avoid that person anymore, or I'm just going to avoid that person. Just make sure I steer clear from the coffee table. How are you? No, I'm good, I'm good. And you go on with your life. That's when we don't care about people. Truly loving and caring people for people, once you get offended, actually means then engaging with that person. Stepping into a difficult conversation. And like, oh, I don't like that. Well, that's why we call to serve not our own interests, but the interests of others. Even if it means calling them out on some things. And it's in those conversations as we move into conflict that we want to be honest with one another and as they ask for forgiveness, we want to be quick to forgive and quick to give grace. That's where we become true community. Any friendship first has to move through conflict to get to real relationship. But the only way that we can move through conflict is by accepting grace from the Father and then giving it to one another. Give grace and mercy. And it specifically means going and talking to that person and not about that person. There's a fine line, but we call it gospel. We think for the sake of, I just want to share this because I want advice. That's how we sugarcoat it. And we gossip about one another. No, what we should do is go engage with that person. Gossip is the slow poison of every community eroding it at its very foundation. We want to be marked by people that are, or we want to be people that is marked by true love, and that means moving into conflict and not around it. Another important application is to learn mindfulness, to be mindful of people's circumstances, to be mindful of people's situations, and then to care for their specific interests. Consider the person studying and their challenges for that life phase. Consider the person working late every night. Consider the parents that are struggling to cope. Consider the people that are struggling with depression. Consider others and maybe then as we start considering how we can also effectively serve and love one another. It's only as we start considering that we can actually move into people's circumstances and live them or love them in those specific situations. But it's difficult because most of the time I'm consumed by my own considerations. Why aren't people considering me? Why are they thinking about my situation? And I think this is the fear that we have that keep us from looking out for others. 
if I look out for everyone around me, who's going to look out for me? What if I give consideration to everyone, but no one considers my situation? And we've got that fear, well, I'm going to keep some back in the tank. I'm just going to make sure that I first look out for number one, for me, and then I'll start looking out for the people around me. What if I'm the one always giving and I never receive back? And friends, this is when we turn back to the gospel. You were already cared for. You're already looked out for. And not just in the past. Christ is looking out for you right now. He is looking out for your future. Everything that is happening in your life right now, he's orchestrating in a way so that you can love him and love the world more. Turn and see the sacrifice of Christ so that the little ways in which we actually regard one another is small in comparison. It's still a sacrifice. Let's be real about that. But fear comes from a place where we actually don't trust Jesus. It's not that I don't trust you guys. It actually arises from a place where I'm not truly sure that God will have my back. In one sense, we do believe that he's capable, that he is powerful, that he can do these things. But is he good? Does he want good things for me? If he is good. Well, family, in the sacrifice on the cross, there can only be one answer. That he was good, he is good to me, and he will always be good to me. What drives us to do the things we do? To live the life of a Christian? It's only the supreme motivation and example of Jesus Christ. Amen. Father, we want to be overwhelmed this morning with this truth. There's no other way to put it clearer than in the poem that Paul wrote and that we read this morning in the sacrifice that you made, the submitting the obedience to the point of death, even death on a cross. Father, we want to sit at that cross. We want to feel the somber day, the darkness, the clouds, the injustice that happened, the heaviness of what happened. And then similarly, we want to be comforted by the exaltation. We want to see that indeed you were raised from the dead. You are enthroned with all glory right now. And by that we can know that you did overcome death. And so everything that I'm asked to do right now, that I'm asked to die to myself, you've already done and so much more. Father, we know that you have our best interests at heart. And so we pray that that fact would change our hearts, would motivate our hearts to seriously love and care for one another. We thank you for this community where we get to practice these things and similarly make mistakes. But I pray in chapter two of Red Door that we would all the more mature in our faith, being quicker to believe grace, being quicker to extend grace and forgiveness and also to ask for forgiveness. Not because of what we want to prove to one another, but what you have already proven to us. For this we love you, we praise you. Amen.